Today is a really big day, at least if you're a football fan, because today are the conference championship games that will be played later on this afternoon. They're going to determine who is going to go to the biggest game of the year, Super Bowl 55. Now, it got me thinking back to those days of pretending to be the superstar quarterback on the playground. Remember those days, playing football on the playground? But in order for a little scrawny white kid to be the superstar quarterback on the playground playing football, you kind of have to, like, make up your own rules. And so when you're playing with your friends, you know, you're playing two-hand touch, and you would say, no, two-hand touch means that you have to get every single, all ten of those fingers have to touch me simultaneously, same time, for me to be down. And that imaginary sideline that you're using, you just say, oh, we shifted it over just a little bit so that you could finish your run into the end zone, score the touchdown. But you see, what happens when you make up your own rules for yourself is that your brother or your best friend, whoever's playing on the team opposite of you, well, what are they going to do? Make up their own rules. And so quickly the game would just erupt into argument and chaos, or you'd have to decide, no, we're going to play by one set of rules that are going to go for everyone. It didn't really work on the playground. And it wouldn't work later on this afternoon. Or it doesn't matter what superstar you are. It doesn't matter if you are Aaron Rodgers or Josh Allen or Patrick Mahomes or even Tom Brady. You can't make up your own rules. And that sideline, it's not imaginary. It's real. It's painted on the field so that everyone knows where it is. And so if it wouldn't work in a game like football, why do we think that would work in life? You know, modern thought, modern philosophy has really pushed into our modern culture this idea of relative morality. This idea that morality, what is what is good and, and what is evil and what is right and what is wrong, that, that really it's, it's ambiguous. Really, that, that there can be no absolute standards that universally apply to everyone. But it just doesn't work in reality. If you, if you get to college and your roommate really wants to argue for this idea of moral relativism and wants to argue that there can be no moral absolutes that apply to everyone, well then just steal his iPhone and see what he thinks about it. Or if it's your neighbor, ask him how he would feel if somebody hurt his kids. It just, it just doesn't work. We understand that there are some moral standards. There are moral absolutes. There is a difference between what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. 
And so in this worship series, as we're talking about soul searching, we're talking about our different worldviews, and I've been inviting you and asking you to think through the implications and the consequences of those worldviews. Today we get to the question of morality. What is good? But in a, a biblical worldview... In this worldview where we recognize that there is this divine, supreme, almighty creator who has made all things, who has placed humanity here for a meaningful purpose and existence in life, the question really shifts a little bit, not what is good, but is God good? That's the question that we really have to ask of a biblical worldview. And I think that a little bit, that's the question that's on people's minds, is if people struggle with a biblical worldview and and they struggle with morality, I wonder if it's because when they hear morality, what they hear is judgment and restriction and burden. But what if instead, when they heard morality, they heard protection and justice and love? What if they had that kind of an understanding, an understanding that comes from knowing that God is indeed good? And that God, because he is good, because of his goodness, wants good for you. To trust that God is good. And because God is good, it means that his morality, the standards that he has set, they are about protection, justice, and love. But I think that we struggle a little bit with understanding that God is good. It's the reason why we ask questions like this. If God is so good and so loving, then why is there so much evil in this world? And if God is so good and so loving, then why does it seem like his book and his church is so judgmental and intolerant? And if God is so good and God wants what is best for me, then why does God hide some things from me? Really, all of those questions have their root in a question that we heard in this biblical narrative that's the foundation for our biblical worldview in Genesis chapter 3 as we saw that transition from God's provision for the world and his provision for humanity. In Genesis chapter 3, it shifts into how humanity lived under that provision from God. And we were introduced to another character who asks a very similar question. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Clearly, this was not an ordinary snake. 
Clearly, he was a, a rational being, and he had a rationalized moral agenda with his question. He wanted to disrupt the trust that humanity had in their God. He wanted to lead them to doubt God's goodness. And his crafty play was to introduce to them a deceptive morality, a morality that was based not on God's goodness, not on the thought and the trust that God had their best interest in mind, but instead a subjective morality, a morality where they could choose for themselves what was right and what was wrong, what was just and unjust, what was holy and unholy. And so he worked on them to doubt God's goodness. It's the very same question that's really before each and every one of us every single day. Do you trust God's goodness? Do you trust his love for you? Do you trust that he wants to protect you and care for you? And in that trust then, to abide by God's morality, his laws, the, the commands that he has given. And really, it's, it is a clear choice when we understand, when we believe, when we trust that God has our best interests in mind, that God truly is good, that his goodness is so great that we would not want to abandon it. The snake went on, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He continued to lead them down this slippery slope of subjective morality. For them to make that choice between good and evil, instead of trusting in God's great goodness. We already see that in this command from God, it came out of God's goodness. It came out of God's desire to protect. He wanted to protect humanity. He had shown them everything that was good in his presence. He gave that command to protect them. But Adam and Eve, they fell into this trap. They doubted God's goodness. They turned their eyes away from his goodness and his love and his protection. And instead, they followed their own desires. And they ate from the fruit. And immediately, they realized some disastrous consequences. I believe it's in verse 7 where we hear this, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see exactly the kind of immorality from which God wanted to protect them. Before this, they had been naked and they felt no shame. There was no need to cover themselves up. There was no need to hide their bodies because there was no thought of another human being who would use and abuse someone else. 
There was no thought of any kind of selfish, self-centered view of another person. There was no thought of sexual gratification that was all about what I get out of it and not about what I give. But now there was. Now they knew that. Now they knew that they could choose to use and abuse someone else. And immediately they were filled with shame because of that thought. Prior to this, Eve had never questioned Adam's motives or his love. Adam had never questioned Eve or her motives, but now they did. Now they wondered. And so they tried to protect themselves. They made clothes for themselves. They tried to protect themselves because they had abandoned God's protection. Prior to this, Never would a child scream and yell at their parents out of hatred. Never would a man beat a woman that he claimed that he loved so that he could feel a little bit more sense of power and control. Never would government officials and activists question the value of human life in utero or argue about semantics and time frames of when a being actually became human. Before this, never would your friend turn enemy in order to take your possessions and make them his own. Never would business deals happen with anything less than complete honesty and integrity. Never would, flame, never would tongues ignite flames, raging fires through slander and lies. That was the kind of immorality that God desired to protect his people from. He wanted them to know through his love and his grace that he wanted to fiercely protect them from that. There was so much good in God's presence. There was so much good in God's love and his grace and the provision that he had made for them, but God wanted them to know the dangers of stepping away from that. The dangers of abandoning God's goodness. To abandon God's goodness for their own morality. There's enormous evil that is present when God's presence is lost. And sometimes we choose to abandon morality, and we choose to abandon God's goodness and his protection as well. Sometimes we desire to go after our own way. But do we really want that? Do, do we really want God to, to stop? To stop holding this world in his hands? Because God is still here. He still protects. He still is present. Do we got, want God to really let go and, and let the darkness consume this world and consume your own heart? The wonderful beauty of a biblical worldview is that God does not stop. 
God did not disengage with this world. God did not stop holding out his protection, even for Adam and Eve who had disobeyed them. And God showed and demonstrated that he still desired to protect. He still desired to carry out justice. He still loved them. He demonstrated that in his grace. You see, a biblical worldview, it's not about the rules. It's about so much more than morals. It's about the superior goodness of God that he saved this broken world. That he sent a Savior. And God made sure that Adam and Eve, they clearly heard that message. That message of God's desire to protect, to carry out justice, and to love. That he would step in with his goodness and fill the void that this evil had created. God turned to the serpent first, but it was really for humanity's benefit when he said these words, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The curse is impossible to miss, but also don't miss the promise. Hostility is something that is always created. Enmity is the word that's used there, but it's hostility. And hostility is always created when we abandon God's goodness and his morality. It's created between us and God. It's created between us and other people. But God said that he would put that hostility where it belonged. Between Eve's descendants, all humanity, and the sinister evil one, the Satan. And he would put that hostility there where it belonged. And then not only that, but God would protect us from that hostility. That there would be one who would come to defeat this serpent for all time. He would come and he would crush the serpent's head. And the biblical narrative continues to tell us about this Savior that God would send. It continues to tell us and point us to Jesus, God's own Son, whom he sent into this world to absorb in himself our immorality. To absorb in himself all the ways that we have abandoned God's justice and truth. And as he absorbed that, and as he took it and carried it to the cross, that God still would protect us. He would protect us from the judgment and the wrath that was poured out on that sin. He would carry forth justice there on the cross through his own son. And he would demonstrate his incredible love for us as Jesus saved us from all sin. And it's as you witness Jesus on the cross that you see God's goodness once again. 
God's incredible goodness that he did not pull back. He did not disengage from this world or your life, but he sent his one and only son to be your savior. Clearly showing his incredible goodness. And there really is no greater morality than that. Than that act of divine justice and mercy. When wrong was made right, when justice was carried out, and when God poured out his love as you were saved. Jesus shows us that the true definition of morality, it is all about love. I think that's an idea that our culture would be ready to jump on board with, but we have to understand that this is love that is defined by God's goodness. It's love that's defined by God's desire to protect. God's desire for justice. It's the kind of love that we see in Jesus. A selfless love. A sacrificing love. A love that was poured out for you and for me. This truly defines for us biblical morality. And our biblical worldview that is centered on what God has done. His great goodness. This morality that's really opposed to everything that might harm you in your life. That God's morality, biblical morality, it's about protection, justice, and love. Everything we see in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.